Welcome to episode six of the Future Firm Accounting Podcast, the place where you can learn about how to modernize and future-proof your accounting firm. I'm your host, Ryan Lozanis, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with someone who's had a huge impact on my last firm, Ron Baker. Ron is often known as the godfather of value pricing, and he's on a mission to eliminate timesheets from your firm. He speaks internationally on the subject, has his own radio talk show, The Soul of Enterprise, has been named as the top 100 most influential people in the profession on numerous occasions, according to Accounting Today, and he was inducted into the CPA Practice Advisor Hall of Fame in 2018. I have often featured his work and other resources in helping firms price their services in my free Future Firm Weekly Top 5 email, curating the weekly top five pieces of content to help modernize your firm. To sign up, please visit www.futurefirm.co slash top five. When I started my firm, Ron's Implementing Value Pricing book was a game changer for me. And if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend doing so. But today I want to talk to him about how firms can properly price their services using a value pricing approach. Ron, thank you very much for being here. Try to go easy on me. Uh, this is only episode six of my podcast, and I know you're a veteran with things like this. But I'm super happy to have you here and welcome to the oh, show. I'm thrilled to be here, Ryan. It's uh, great to have the tables turned after we had you on our show. So <laughs> looking forward to it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So why don't we get right into this, Ron? What is value pricing? Value pricing is charging a price commensurate with the value that you're creating for your customer. Price is simply how we div- divide up value. Uh, you know, you and I can just, if I'm trying to sell you my house, I obviously probably have a pretty high opinion of its value. You might have a different opinion, but we could still agree upon a price. So all transactions at the end of the day are based on disagreement with respect to value. It's not, you know, the accountants say debits equal credits, but in the real world, debits don't equal credits because Mm -hmm. exchanges take place because of the inequality between what I see the value as and what you see the value as. And that's, and that, uh, is reconciled with price. Right. And, you know, I've seen you speak on this subject many, many times already. You're clearly passionate about it. Why are you so passionate about this subject? That's a really good question. I mean, I did it in my firm in 1989 before there was anybody talking about it and it works so well. And it enabled us to upgrade our customers, shed a bunch of low value customers, increase our prices. It allowed us to get rid of our timesheets shortly after doing it. I just realized, hey, if you weren't pricing by time, you didn't need to measure this. Um, And I didn't have the vocabulary of business model change, but that's what we did. And it worked so well that I was just very enthusiastic about sharing it with my colleagues. I've always known I wanted to be a teacher. In, in some capacity. And I always know, knew that I wanted to write a book, um, but never knew exactly what it was. And this kind of landed on me and kind of springboarded me into authorship. And I've written seven books since my first one came out in 98. So I've uh, been devoted to doing this because I guess I'm passionate about wanting to change our profession. I think mm-hmm. our profession is stuck we're kind of like um, we have this intellectual embargo. Uh, we're operating on a business model that is literally a hundred years old this year. It, it yeah. started in law firms in 1919, and it's the world has changed, and it's just time that we adapt. 
And, and you said you ran your own firm for several years. Um, when was that first moment? Because if I understand correctly, when you started your firm, you were pricing by the hour. Um, when did you, what was that moment where you said, this is not working anymore and I need to move to a different approach? Do you remember that exact moment? I do. It was, you know, I came out of a big eight accounting firm and Ryan, I was a bookkeeper, accountant all through college. Even in high school, I was doing income tax returns and even defending people against IRS audits in high school. Um, <laughs> my dad was a small business owner, so I did his books, lots of his friends' books and colleagues' books. That's how I put myself through college. And that was all done by the hour. And I kept a timesheet. When I was in high school, I did a timesheet. Wow. Uh, wow. And when I got out and went to work for a big eight accounting firm, which was uh, Pete Mark Mitchell at the time, now KPMG, uh, I billed by the hour. And then I started my own firm and I was path dependent. You know, what you are in the future is dependent on what you were in the past. And I kept a timesheet and I billed by the hour. And the reason I changed is I got sick and tired of customers either calling or coming in with, with my invoice and saying, why didn't you tell me it was going to cost this much? And my only response, Ryan, was I spent the time because that's what I was taught. And you know what? They didn't care about the time. And then and there it dawned on me that how can I sell something to somebody if that's not what they think they're buying? Even though Pete Mark told, taught me that I was selling time, we're not selling time. We're selling the transformations that we provide to our customers, moving them from where they are to where they want to be, some desired future state. That's really what they're purchasing, not the time. In fact, if we could do it in less time, they'd probably value it even more. So we just started experimenting with offering fixed prices. I didn't do any of the things that I teach about today. I didn't offer options. I didn't start offering a, a value guarantee until a little bit later, but I did fix the payment terms and I did fix the price and the customers loved it. I did this because I was studying at the time, great service companies. I was studying Disney, Nordstrom, Lexus, American Express, companies that had an incredible reputation for fantastic customer service. And I said to my partner, I want to be this. I, and the billable hour, you can't be a great service organization because, quite frankly, the billable hour is a crappy customer experience because they never know how much something's going to cost. Right. So it really centered around improving the customer experience, essentially. Correct. Um, now, you're big on eliminating timesheets and not using timesheets and not using timesheets as a method for pricing. Um, what do you, did you get rid of your timesheet immediately at the firm? Like when you said, okay, you know what, this is not a good customer experience. I'm going to move to a different kind of pricing method. Now I'm going to get rid of my timesheet. Like how, how quickly did you get rid of your timesheet after you said, I want to price in a different manner? Once I figured out, once I put a few customers on fixed prices, then I realized, you know what, there's no need to track time on those. And so as hourly engagement started to wind down because we were moving people over to fixed prices. All new customers were put on a fixed price. You know, Ryan, there's a big debate out there and I just laugh at it. Um, mm -hmm. Should we start with new customers or existing customers? I'm completely agnostic on this. And the reason is 
because I started with existing customers first. I've seen it work both ways. And I think accountants are smart enough to chew gum and walk at the same time. Why can't we put all new customers on this right away? Because it's a great competitive advantage, but also at the same time, convert existing customers. So about half the people that I've seen make this conversion, about half the firms have have started with existing customers. I started there for a very simple reason. I had a great relationship with these people. I knew them. I could talk candidly with them. I did my first fixed price agreement in a bar on the 19th hole of a golf course. <laughs> and so it was, it was uh, as, as those hourly engagements started to wind down, I figured out after the first three or four fixed price engagements that I didn't need to keep timesheets on those because they weren't priced based on time. They were priced based on value and what me and the customer agreed was the worth of the services. And therefore, the timesheets probably went away after about the first four to six months, I'd say. Got it. So it wasn't used as a tool for pricing. But what about firms that say, okay, well, we're going to give a price up front. We're going to, you know, that's what the customer wants. They want an upfront, upfront, upfront fixed price. I'll deliver that. But I want the timesheet because I need to know if that mandate was profitable or not. What do you say to that? It's absurd. They're, they're using the cost accounting defense uh, for timesheets and cost accounting and timesheets are, timesheets are lousy cost accountants. First off, they include profit. So your hourly rate includes profit. Second off, it's a non-cash cost. Unless you've got a very flexible labor force, uh, what, when you pay somebody 75 grand or 100 grand a year salary, I don't care what they're doing. I don't care if they're doing eBay auctions or playing video games online or doing high-level accounting work. The cash outlay is the same. So whether they spend 10 hours on something or five hours on something, your cash costs haven't changed a nickel. So my question for accountants is, do you want to make an accounting profit or do you want to make cash? <laughs> I want to make cash. And since there's a massive distinction between cash and non-cash costs, and also you got it, and, and, and this is going to be tough pill to swallow for a lot of accountants out there, especially for those who have taken cost accounting. And I'm a former cost accountant, so I'm like a reformed smoker on this. But I will tell you this emphatically. Products and services do not have costs. Firms do. Customers don't have costs. Firms do. If, you know, as soon as we take a customer on, we allocate all the time that we spend on it. Does that mean that if we didn't take that customer on, those costs that we allocated to that customer would be saved in cash? It's an absurd question. We pay largely fixed costs for things like capacity, technology, and labor, irrespective of how they're utilized. Therefore, what I'm trying to do with firms is maximize their operating cash over a portfolio, over the entire firm. I'm, I'm much less interested in profit per job and profit per hour because profit per customer, because you can't compute those things. Any way you desire to compute that is completely arbitrary and has nothing to do with cash. I'm much more interested in analyzing cash flow. 
um, and also getting the pricing right because pricing is the number one driver of profitability, not accurate cost accounting. Right. So is there some kind of measure out, like, cause I think what you say is if you want to see if you're profitable or not, look at your P and L, right? Yeah. Uh, I, um, yeah, it is, it does do that. So is there anything out there that, because I don't think accountants will really like that answer. No, they that you provided, Right. So they're numbers people, they like to measure things, they like to calculate things. So, you know, when they sit, when you, when they hear that kind of answer, look at my overall profitability, they'll, they'll just revert back to, they will. yeah, but I, I want to know how I did on that job. And, um, you know, uh, I could see if I was maybe not efficient enough and that will maybe help necessitate a price increase, let's say, or that will maybe help identify if I need to talk to a particular team member about what maybe went wrong to modify the process. Like, is, is, is your argument the same in that instance? No, no, you just swerved into an important truth. They're using the timesheet to check the price because even though they gave a fixed price up front, it's still based mm-hmm. on hours. And as long as that timesheet's there, they're always going to look at it to check their price. And until we break that link, we'll, we will never, ever be able to get to true value pricing. Every firm that's made this conversion, every firm that I have talked to, and I've talked to thousands across all different professional sectors that have made this conversion, has said one thing to me. We should have got rid of the timesheets sooner. We would have upped our pricing skill better. I contend that if you get rid of the timesheets sooner rather than later, you're going to up your pricing game simply because you're not going to have that that crutch. It doesn't tell you who the efficient CPAs are. That's absurd. I ask firm owners all the time, can you tell me who your stars are and your duds without looking at any financial data? And the answer to that is emphatically, yes, I can. We know that just from their attitude, their passion, their professionalism, their enthusiasm, all the things that aren't measured on a timesheet. A timesheet is not at all predictive of a successful accountant. And to run your firm with timesheets is the equivalent of timing your cookies with your smoke alarm. Because by the time you see something on a timesheet, it by definition is no longer manageable. So all the defenses, and there's four major ones that are thrown up for timesheets, are we've blown them out of the water. Now, Accountants don't like the answers, and I understand that. It goes against everything that we were taught, including myself, by the way. I didn't like these answers either. But, Ryan, that doesn't make them wrong. And until accountants get intellectually curious and study these issues and wrestle with these issues on their own, and there's a ton of of information out there now, much more than there was when I did this in 89, they'll learn that there's a reason companies like Bain and McKinsey also got rid of their timesheets. Now, we used to hold up Bain and McKinsey as examples because we all know the accounting professions moving towards advisory, consulting, whatever you want to call it. it well, at least we think we are. We've been talking about this for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Whether or not we made any progress on this is, is, is a you know jury still out. But that's where we desire to go, and that's kind of where the opportunities are, and we can talk more about that. But the point is, Bain and Company and McKinsey got rid of this B 
because they know it's an archaic practice. They know it prevents them from attracting and retaining fantastic talent, and they need great talent, and they're full of really smart, talented people. And if they can do it, accountants can do it. This this idea that I don't like the answer, therefore it can't be done, is just... It, it, there's there's no intellectual basis. I'm an empiricist. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the mayor of Realville. If I have a worldview and you come to me and you tell me something that absolutely contradicts that worldview, I'm not just going to dismiss you. I'm going to go investigate like mad what you're telling me because I live in constant fear that my worldview is wrong. And if somebody challenges it, either I'm going to take their argument down or I'm going to change my mind. And that's exactly what happened to me with this. I was as fervent a believer in timesheets in the billable hour as any accountant out there. And now I'm on the other side because I've seen the light and so have thousands of firms and you just can't dismiss that, including your firm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, no, I agree with you. It's just that, you know, again, accountants like to see a number behind some kind of formula to back up their thoughts. Of course they do. Accountants rather be precisely wrong rather than approximately right. And when it comes to pricing and value, it's far more important to be approximately right because the fact of the matter is value is subjective. It's a feeling. It's not a number. Now, price is a number. I'll grant you that. But- Mm -hmm. For you to take somebody's annual salary and say they spent 10 hours on this and therefore I'm going to you know, divide that cost out and compare it to what I priced, that's absurd. Because if that person didn't spend 10 hours, would you have saved that money? No, you would have spent it anyway. So the whole allocation from a math perspective is incorrect. And just one more thing on this, and there's great books out there by Dr. Reginald Lee. Uh, he, he wrote two phenomenal books, Lies, Damn Lies, and Cost Accounting. And the second book, his most recent book, and full disclosure, I wrote the foreword to it because I was so impressed with it, is Strategic Cost Transformation. These two books destroy cost accounting, and I mean destroy it once and for all. This thing needs to die, and why accountants are so invested in it has always mystified me because we didn't invent cost accounting. Engineers did. They did it in the railroad industry and they warned people that it was imprecise and it was full of a lot of fuzzy and wrong math and to be very careful with this tool because it used incorrectly, it can lead you down very bad to, to, to make very bad decisions. And right. the great thing about Dr. Reginald Lee is he's not an accountant, he's an engineer so engineers led us into this and engineers lighting the darkness and leading us out of it. Got it. I want to return to this a little bit later on, but um, very briefly, I'm wondering if you could just just outline the steps to implementing value pricing. And by the way, um, for anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about implementing value pricing, Ron has an absolutely amazing book. You should go grab it. It was one of the books that really changed my. It had a massive impact on my firm, not just about not just on how to price your services, but uh, it really changed my my thought process and the dynamic and the interactions that you have with your clients when you adopt this way of thinking. 
Um, so great, great book. It has there in it. It lists eight steps to impl- implementing value pricing. Could you very briefly just outline those steps? Yeah, the first one is is you know, uh, and all firms that have made this conversion will tell you this is a constant challenge, and it's the hardest step in the eight steps. It's one that's very, very difficult to master because it's an art. Is having the value conversation with the customer because that's a process kind of like a doctor takes a medical history. You know, you just can't go to a doctor and say, hey, doc, I think I need a triple bypass. Oh, sure, Ron, hop up on the table. You know, they're going to put you through a series of tests and diagnostics, and they're going to take a family history. They're going to be very thorough because the second law of medicine teaches that prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And I think a lot of times we accountants just dive into the work and the scope of work and what needs to be done because that's where we're comfortable. But we don't yeah. take the time to step back and try and figure out what is it that the customer's really trying to achieve. They may come to us with what doctors call the presenting problem, and they may even understand their symptoms, but we understand the underlying causes. And what they're presenting with may not be the real issue. It may just be the symptom. We have to get to the cause. And maybe there's a different way to achieve what it is that they're trying to, to do. You know, we're, we're trying to look for the end result. So we're trying to have that, a great in-depth conversation, asking more beautiful questions. This is not the time for us to demonstrate our expertise. It's not the time to give answers. It's the time to listen. We should listen 80% of the time during this conversation. And my favorite example of this, Ryan, just real quick, is if I was in the market for a landscaper and the first guy tried to charge me 40 bucks an hour, you know, he's charging me based on inputs. The second guy comes out, he gives me a fixed price, just like you you said before, firms are willing to give a fixed price. But he does it for a scope of work. I'll do the mowing, the edging, take care of the, you know, the bushes and all that. He's charging me based on outputs. But imagine the third guy came out and said, Ron, I'm going to give you the best curbside appeal in the neighborhood. Now, would I be willing to pay two or three times more than I'm paying for the best curbside appeal in the neighborhood? I certainly would if I was going to sell my house within a year or so because the ROI and that's phenomenal. But he's also taking me and he's transforming me. And when you provide transformations, the customer is the product. We're not selling services as accountants. We're transforming our customers we're helping them grow their business, sell their business, enjoy their retirement years, get their kid into college, plan their legacy through estate planning, their legacy for you know posterity. Those are all personal transformations. The customer is literally the product. We're touching their heart and their soul. And when you can do that, the value, the perceived value of what you're delivering is much higher And the customer will gladly pay you more and they'll be happier for it. If I could find a landscaper who would give me the best curbside appeal, I'd pay three and a half times more than I'm paying now and I'd be happier. So this idea that customers are price sensitive is completely false, but it's that value conversation that is the first and most important step. In fact, I think, Ryan, that the value conversation is the closest thing business has to church. Okay. How so? (laughs) Uh, Because we need to hear it every week. We need to be the choir. You know, uh, it's okay to preach to the choir. The the choir doesn't get up and leave when when the reverend or the priest starts preaching, right? The choir needs to hear it too. And 
we need to hear it every week. It, it's something that you, it's a constant art. You'll never master it. I, I know the two best people probably that I've ever met in the value conversation. One's my colleague, Dan Morris, and another is my colleague, Daryl Golem. They're both CPAs, one San Diego's, one San Jose, and they're masters at this. I mean, they are masters at questioning, asking a more beautiful question, really diagnosing, taking the time, even, even having multiple meetings with the customer about the value of what, what they can create. And I ask them, what, what, what percent of the time do you think you get it right? And they're like, eh, maybe 40%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 and for me that was a tough step as well. You really have to retrain yourself. You have to think about the type of questions. It's really putting a lot of thought into that whole step, you know? Not just rushing in saying, "Do you need a tax return? Do you need a financial statement? Do you need a sales tax filing?" It's a lot deeper than that. And that's something that took me a while to kind of wrap my head around as well, and I don't think you ever perfect that as you mentioned. No. Um so jumping into some of these other steps here, um, take me through a few of those other steps and and, and keep it, um, uh, yeah, just take me few of those, okay. through a few of those other steps. So you glean all this knowledge from the value conversation about what it is the yep. client's trying to achieve. You go back and whoever is in charge of the pricing, and we can talk about whether or not you should have a value council. I don't think one person should do the pricing. I think it should be a team. When you slam minds together, you're more innovative, you're more creative, especially when it comes to pricing. And you price the customer, not the services. You price the customer, not the services. Now, that's the that's the premise of value pricing, is we're not pricing services, we're pricing the customer. Because value is subjective, two customers could have the very different value perceptions of the same item. And therefore, we need to price the customer, not the service. And then as part of that, you're also developing and pricing at least three options. So that's the third let me, step. Let me cut you off here if okay. you don't mind. Sure, sure. Price the customer. Um, how do you pick that price? Okay. Like, again, you look at the typical, you know, uh, firm, you know, they're pricing, I think it's going to take me five hours. So, you know, either going to price afterwards after, after the time has been spent, or, you know, I'm going to make that estimate beforehand and give an upfront fixed price and a value price. How do you pick that price? It comes from the value conversation. That's exactly yeah. why you're having the value conversation. What's the impact of what we're doing for you? You know, and trying to figure out the business case, what's the business impact or the personal impact, and trying to get a sense of how important it is for the customer. If that landscaper knew I was selling my house within six months, he could probably sell me a plan that said, I'll give you the best curbside appeal at even a higher price than he sold it just last week to the neighbor across the street, right? Because I'd be willing to to pay for that, especially if he knew more yeah. about me that I hate yard work. I'm not Martha Stewart. I don't even want to look at my yard, all those different things. That's all gleaned from that value conversation. It starts with value. It has nothing to do with price. It starts with value, and it's the value that determines the upper bound of the price. Now, here's another myth to dispel, and this gets into the third step as well, this idea of pricing options. We have to get over the idea that there's one optimal price for a customer. That's absurd. There's not one optimal price. There's a range of optimal prices. Now, pricers have to narrow that range. You have to think about what would be so expensive the customer would say no and not hire us. 
what would be expensive, but the customer would still hire us. And that price exists. And if anybody out there has an Apple product in front of them, you've already made that decision, right? Because Apple's not the cheapest thing on the market, and yet we all line up and buy it, right? It's expensive, but we know it's good. We love it for whatever reason. There's a whole bunch of psychological reasons why people love Apple. And then there's a price that's cheap that would be considered cheap, but the customer would still buy it, right? You'd you'd say, wow, quick, sign before they change their mind type of thing. But Ryan, there's also a price that's so cheap, the customer won't buy it. So we can price ourselves too high and not get the work, but we can also price ourselves too low. The customer would doubt our quality. They doubt our expertise. They think it was a elaborate bait and switch system to get them into a million change orders or whatever. And they would just doubt it, right? Just like when New England had a glut of lobster a few years ago, the restaurant said, oh, well, we'll, you know, following the law of demand, we'll drop the price and our revenue from lobster should go up. It went down because nobody trusts cheap lobster, (laughs) right? It's like gas station sushi. So there's a range of optimal prices. And one of the first jobs of a pricer is to narrow that range in between what's expensive and still purchasable and what's too low. This is not based on any formula. This is based on, I think the client will pay this. I think the customer will pay this for this set of options, let's say. Right. But it's not just, I think it's all based on what you learned in the value conversation. And that's why there's so much emphasis put on the value conversation, because there's, if you do it right, there's a wealth of knowledge that comes out of that value conversation. You're, You're getting the true value drivers, what the customer really cares about, what they're really going for. Because all customers have, every single customer has uh, best curbside appeal. They do. We all do. We all buy outcomes. I I don't buy products and services. You don't buy a diamond ring to own diamond rings. You buy a diamond ring to watch the reaction of your loved one, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And and how it makes her and you feel. And that's I mean, qualitative. That's There's right. quantitative and, that's, and qualitative. That's and right. So that is based on a feeling though. This that's stuff right. is based on a feeling and it's the feeling that, that they get for the transformation that you're going to deliver. But it's also the feeling that you get for what you think they're going to pay for it. I know it comes from the value conversation, but ultimately you're never going to be able to know. You're, quantifying that value, I think, is a difficult thing to do. Do you disagree with that? No, I, I don't. I, I, because there is no checklist. There is no formula. If anybody tells you there's a formula for pricing, they're charlatan um, because value is subjective. If you believe that value is subjective and I have yet to find a better theory and if somebody's got a better theory of value, I'm all ears because a heck of a lot smarter people than me figured this back, figured this out back in 1871 and we haven't improved upon it since. Um, but you know, we like quantification. We like objectivity. And again, it's far more important to be approximately right than to be precisely wrong. And the billable hour is precisely wrong. Sure, we can use a formula. We can track time down to the one minute and it can we can plug it into a formula and spit out a bill that's really accurate. But it's completely divorced from reality and value to the customer. Right. So on, on this subject of establishing a price. Um, what about, now you talked about time and um, 
backwards looking cost allocations of time and why that doesn't make sense. What about being able to estimate your time upfront? How important is that? Forecasting the time commitments required for the services that you're going to be delivering. Is this important? Is this not important? It is important because that's that's proper project management. That's capacity planning. Project managers do worry about duration. They do worry whether or not we can do this job within the the time that we promised the customer, the, the due date, whatever the constraint might be. And therefore, they do, they will project time into the future. I'll give you a project and say, Ryan, I believe this should take you roughly a day. Now, from a project management perspective, whether or not you spend 10 hours on that or 12 or six or four, they're not going to get excited about that. What they get worried about is why did a project I gave to Ryan that we estimated should take about a day, why did it sit in the firm for four weeks? Mm-hmm. That's called duration, and that's what gives headaches to project managers. This is why FedEx tracks on-time delivery. They don't track how long the package stayed in the air. They don't track how long it stayed on the truck. They track when it dropped on your doorstep because that's what the customer cares about. And we should be doing the same thing. Our measurement should mirror how the customer defines our success as accountants. And they don't. We measure things the customer could care less about. We don't measure turnaround time like FedEx. We don't measure promises kept. We don't measure customer experience, except those firms that do the net promoter score. And even those firms that do, we have an average score of 19, by the way, as a profession, which sucks. Just, to, I mean, that just sucks. The BMW and Apple are in the high seventies, okay, and we're at nineteen as a profession. That gives you that gives you a little insight into our customer service ethic, and I think the billable hour and the timesheet are part and parcel of that. We are measuring and pricing based upon the wrong things. Time, time is not value, and time is not a cost. You no more paid your people for their time than your customers paid you for your time. You paid your people for the outcomes they could produce for you and your firm and your customers. And time is just a constraint. You know, Bill Gates is subject to the same amount of time we are. Any entrepreneur is. We All living things are. It, it's just a constant constraint. It, it, we can't manage it. We can't store it. We can't sell it. We can't hoard it. We can't trade it. We, it's just, it's a constraint. I mean, Einstein taught us this for crying out loud with the theory of relativity and we're treating it like it's, like it's value and like it's cost and it's not, it's a constraint. And that's how project managers look at it. But here's the difference. When a project manager says to you, Ryan, this should take about eight hours. He's not going to take the time to reconcile that to actual time spent. And that's what we accountants love to do. We love our budgets and what was actual and then what was the variance. There's no need to do it because by the time you do that reconciliation, it's history. It's irrelevant. And it's irrelevant to the value that you're creating anyway. I don't care if you spend a thousand hours on something. It's irrelevant to the value to the customer. I could spend a thousand hours writing my book. And if nobody read it, what am I going to do? Go tell the world they owe me a living because I spent a thousand hours on this? I agree with you on that. Um, So 
it is important from a project management standpoint to estimate your time commitments in advance for capacity and workload planning. Very important part of running a firm, I think. But I, I do believe that at one, uh, I, I, whether it's in your book or some of the conversations we've had, you said that you do also have to know your, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you said you also have to kind of know your costs in advance as well. Is this Correct me if I'm if I'm off base here, but is this part of it? Like, if you if you establish a price based on the value that you th- based on that value conversation, should you be able to scope out the costs in advance as well, or is this not part of it? No, it, I do I do often say that that the you know pricers need to know their costs in advance. Now that's because we mm-hmm. talk about we, we combine all businesses. So you know, if I'm making cars, I need to know what the motor and the you know all the parts are going to cost and all of that. But in a service, how do I take the rent and allocate it to one client? How do I take the toilet paper and allocate it to one client? It, it, now, you can do that, and we do this all the time in cost accounting, but this is the point. This is the problem. Any way you do that is completely arbitrary. <laughs> it, it, it's, just, it's the difference between a metric and a measurement, right? A measurement is you and I go outside with a thermometer and we get a reading of you know seventy five degrees. That's a measure because it's not it's not dictated by the choices that we make. But a metric, we all know that you can play games with metrics. I can use LIFO or FIFO inventory. I can use straight line or accelerated depreciation, and I can manipulate my bottom line. That's a metric, and cost accounting is nothing but metrics because. You know how many sanctioned cost accounting methods there are. There's lean, there's standard, there's full absorption, there's marginal. Each one will get you a radically different number for cost per unit. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. which one's right? Well, the answer is none of them are right. Because back to this idea that at the end of the day, if you really think about this, products don't have costs. Services don't have costs. Customers don't have costs. Firms have costs. And what we need to do is optimize the yield. And and, and by the way, this is why airlines and hotels and cruise ships don't do cost accounting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So step one is having that value conversation. Step two is pricing the customer. Uh, step three, which you're getting into is developing uh, different pricing options, right? Um, uh, not sure there's anything you wanted to add to that, but I think it's important that if you're going to be adopting this value pricing approach, that you have a few different options that you offer um, to kind of help create a, a bit of a range of price. Is that because it's hard to hit the bullseye directly? Is, is yes. that one of the reasons? We're searching we're, because again, remember there's not one optimal price. There's a range of optimal prices, right? Think of, think of what you'd be willing to pay for a Coke. Right. If you buy it at Sam's Club or Costco, it's probably, I don't know, 20 cents. If you buy it at your grocery store, it could be 30 cents a can. But what if you buy it at a hockey game? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. or in a hotel mini bar. And and we we all bought Cokes in these various places, paying a radically different price. So there's a range of acceptable prices. Your job as a pricer, your pricer's job is to search that range. And the most effective way to search the range is offer options. And most of the time people will pick the middle option because we kind of, it's, it's called extreme avoidance. We don't like the extremes. I think all oh, the most expensive ones probably got too many bells and whistles and the cheapest ones probably not going to do good enough for me. So I'll pick, I'll be safe and pick the one in the middle. But the other thing that offering ranges or, or options does 
is it allows you to showcase uh, a first-class seat, a, a presidential suite. It's your best offering. You should be proud of it. And if you never offer that white glove Rolls-Royce offering, guess what? You'll never sell one. And some customers do want that white glove treatment. They are willing to pay uh, for the best for the best uh, of whatever. And therefore, we should always offer three options, sometimes even four when you get a little bit more advanced. I wouldn't go more than four, though. But the options are, are a really powerful pricing mechanism because they allow us to search the optimal range of price because it's not an exact science. You can't, you'll never hit the bullseye. Yeah. That's the first time I've actually heard you say that sometimes you would recommend four options. I'm interested to hear why, um, why you think four options might be a good approach as opposed to three. Because, um, now that there's so many firms out there and have been doing this for years, some of them are offering like a black card option, like American express. That's actually in some firms, it's actually invitation only. And it's a very, very expensive, but it's a very, very high level of service and a whole bunch of other you know value drivers for the customer. And sometimes you just need some flexibility based upon what you heard in the value conversation. You might want to have, um, you know, a do it yourself option where you're just providing the education or maybe a do it yourself option and you're doing a review or maybe you, and then maybe you want to do a, uh, you know, we'll do it with you. And then the top option would be, well, don't worry, we'll do it for you. We'll do everything for you. So sometimes you need a little bit of flexibility and that's why the fourth option, but most of the time it's three. And especially if you're starting out, you shouldn't mess with four options, but just a caveat on this, you should never do two options either, because when you put two options in front of the human brain, they're more likely to pick the cheaper of the two yeah, because they're making a price decision at that point because there's only two things to compare. But when you put three options in front of them, they're making a value decision yeah. and that's why they'll go for the middle. The thing I like about the three options and perhaps it has a little bit to do with my personality as well is I find it's less confrontational when you present the price. You know, it's not just uh, a take it or leave it type thing. It's having a conversation about what's possible, let's say, or what the range of recommended services might be. So that's one of the reasons why I personally like the the three option type approach. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. And I also would point out that it, it, it gets rid of a lot of negotiation too, because you are giving them options. So negotiation tends to disappear because again, when you put three options in front of the human brain, you're fundamentally changing the question of, should I work with Ryan to how should I work with Ryan? And that's very powerful. So I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be here, but do you do you prefer uh, generally a tight price range among the options, or do you like to keep it quite wide? It depends. I know you're going to say it depends on it, the customer. That's my favorite answer. That's the pricer's yeah. favorite answer. It does depend on the customer. Because remember, each, each customer is a little randomized, controlled experiment that we get to do and we get feedback from. Our, I've seen ranges that are pretty tight, say within, you know, from say 5,000 to 10,000, just to pick a pick a range, but I'm also the chief value officer, um, for Armanino here in California and they're the 22nd largest firm. And I've seen ranges as our firm from 30 to 200,000. So it, 
it really varies. It, 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 there's a lot of factors involved. Are we up against another firm? Is it an RFP situation? Have we met with the economic buyer? Uh, what other services may they be, might they be interested in? Does the buyer have the authority to purchase those other services? Some, a lot of times they don't. They're just the audit committee whose only mandate is to hire the audit. Other times it is the board that you're dealing with and they can they can hire other services as well. So it really depends on a host of things. That, But I do like to see a very nice high price for the top package though mm-hmm. yeah. because I think high prices tempt. And we've sold... We've sold some. And when you do that, that's a windfall profit. That, you know, I'm no longer sitting back thinking, oh, did we make money on that? Did we spend too much time? <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, how much money did I leave on the table by not pricing that higher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So we've gone through three of the steps. Um, what's the uh, what's the fourth step? Is presenting the options to the customer. And I prefer that you do this in a in a table format you so you present the three options you know from left to right beginning with your most expensive mm-hmm. and when we when you present those options um i prefer the firm do it in person if possible uh and this is also when you might get some price objections you know wow ryan you're you're 40 higher than the second lowest you know bid that we got or the or the nearest bid that we got or why are you 40% more than the other firm I talked to down the street? We better have answers to those objections. There's a finite number of price objections. We should have answers to all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the presenting. And then once they select an option, if they do hire you, they select an option. And then I just codify that into a fixed price agreement yep. where it just kind of lays out, here's the price, here's the scope of work, here are the things that we're doing. Here are your obligations, if there are are any, Mr. Customer, about, you know, you have to provide us with bank recs or, or prepared by schedule, you know, prepared by customer schedules, whatever it might be. Maybe you lay out deadlines, milestones for the engagement. You lay out the payment terms. You lay out your change request and change order policy. You lay out your value guarantee. Uh, and then the sixth step, of course, is the project just, management. Just, just to interrupt you there, Ron, because... Yep. This is a step where I, I see is exceptionally important, the fixed price agreement, um, especially if you're moving from that billable hour model. Um, because when you have that billable hour approach, you can just kind of run the clock, right? I don't know if your scope has to be super well-defined. Uh, clear, Definitely not as well-defined as it has to be in a fixed price agreement. Do you see... Do you see this as an issue among firms adopting a value pricing approach that they're not adequately defining the services and their scope of work? Yeah, they can. Some firms are better at it than others. It's it's also kind of an art to define scope of work because you don't want to be you don't want to be too restrictive here. And this is where good pricing comes into play. You know, I'm comfortable enough pricing things where I don't have to worry about every little change order. You know, if we spend another few hours because we didn't anticipate this or, you know, we find something that the client didn't tell us about or whatever, I don't care, especially if they picked a middle or top package. I'm just going to do it because I've built in some some wiggle room into the price itself for that. Um, But we do try and scope as best we can, at least, you know, based on what we know. Nobody's got a perfect crystal ball. Um, But, you know, to the extent that the job is predictable, 
then that's probably a relatively lower value job. The jobs that excite me the most are the ones that are the least predictable, that have a lot of risk and uncertainty, because that's where we can earn supernormal profits and windfall profits. I can't do that off a rote job. You know, if I know I'm just doing payroll tax returns, just as an example, or sales tax returns, I know what they entail. I know there's not a lot of variance between the most complex and the least complex. There's not a lot of room there for me to make, you know, windfall profits. But if I'm doing installations or some type of analysis or something that's very, very complex, forensic accounting, for example, then that is where we can offer really good pricing and 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 capture a nice share of the value that we're creating and make those windfall profits because all profits come from risk and if we're really if we're not willing to take risk then we're never going to make super normal profits right um so you have the fixed price agreement in place uh what happens after that then hopefully there's proper project management and that again is kind of like think about it as doing your timesheet in advance Mm-hmm. And people always ask, well, but wouldn't you have to have a history to know? Look, <laughs> if you have to have a history to know what something takes, then you're not paying attention. Um, and this is where after action reviews come in. If you do after action reviews after every major engagement, you're going to get a feel for why things worked out the way they did and how you could do them better next time. My mm-hmm. other problem with the timesheet is it doesn't help anybody improve. If I beat up on you, Ryan, because I said, well, Ryan, you spent 30 hours on this and I only gave you a budget for 10. How does that help you improve? But if we sit down and have an after action review with the team who worked on this engagement and talk about what were the objectives, what went right, what went wrong, what would we do better next time, then that's actually going to improve future performance. That's why the military uses after action reviews. Um, and so that's the eighth step in the process, by the way to do a pricing after action review on the, on the actual pricing. Mm-hmm. But I think technical after action review should be done as well. And the, the seventh step after proper project management is dealing with any scope creep by triggering a change request and then possibly a change order, much like a purchase request has to be approved beca- before it becomes a purchase order. A change request can be either brought to the customer by us, or sometimes the customer sees there's a change in the job. Hey, we forgot to tell you about this. And then we decide whether or not um, there's going to be a price change. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes we're just pushing out the deadline on when the job will be completed, or we're changing the quality parameters. And so that's, that's what the uh, seventh step is, is dealing with scope creep. And there's another issue too, Ryan, that's not talked a lot about, but it needs to be because I actually think it's a bigger problem. And that is scope SEEP, S-E-E-P. And that is when the firm does something on behalf of the client that adds value that the customer never asked for. Yeah. And I think that's a bigger problem, especially when you have a... uh, an expensively priced job, say they pick the ultimate package. There's a lot of, there's a lot of profit built in. Sometimes the team will just go off on a tangent and do something else for it because they figure, Hey, we got the budget. This is another reason timesheets are so dangerous, right? We're tracking the time and we're, Hey, you know, this is coming out at 500 hours and we, and we're done and we've only got 70 hours into it. Sure. We can go do this special project that happens all the time. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of the customer and 
you know, put our thumb or, or give them what, what, what do they call it in the South, a lanyard, you know, the extra, um, you know, baker's dozen, the 13th donut or whatever. I'm not saying we should never do that. I'm all for investing in the relationship, but you know, I think scope seep can be a big problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've gone through these eight steps. Um, what is your number one tip for firms that want to get started with a true value pricing approach? And I'm not talking about a fix upfront fixed price, which is based on time. If they want to adopt a value pricing approach, what is your number one tips for them to get started with it? It's one customer at a time. It's one cut, pick a customer. I don't care if it's an existing customer. I don't care if it's a brand new customer, pick a customer and start. Have the value conversation. Really take the time to step back and and ask them questions like your doctor does, even though your doctor doesn't spend a lot of time with you probably. Uh, we have the luxury of being able to spend more time. And then offer three options and present those live to the customer. Watch the reaction. Watch how it changes the dynamic in the relationship between you and the customer. And whether or not you got the price right or wrong, I don't care about that. I care about what you learned and your confidence in being able to do the second one and then the third one. It's one customer at a time. You don't have to send a letter out to everybody saying, oh, we're going to change the price. It's one customer at a time. Just do one. (laughs) And then that will lead to the second one will be easier. The third will be even easier. And then before you know it, you'll have a good chunk of your revenue under value pricing. And um, you said that you don't care if you get the price wrong for the first time around. Do you think that uh, firm owners and firm leaders need to be prepared to uh, go through making some pricing mistakes early on? And uh, like, what's your thought there? Because I know when I started this approach, you know, I was, I was terrible, Um, you know, and it took me time to get comfortable with it. Um, Do you think that firm owners need to be prepared to go through a little bit of pain at the beginning? Of course, you know, value pricing is hard, right? It's, um, you know, so is golf. Um, when tiger slams one in the water, he doesn't throw his clubs down and go, this game's hard and give up. But I, I would remind firms, um, you're making a ton of pricing mistakes now by the hour. <laughs> you're not even getting a hundred percent of, of a fixed hourly rate. And, and, and not only are you limiting your income, you're not even reaching the limit. <laughs> and the limit is self-imposed, at least with value pricing and at least with these eight steps, especially the after action review, you're going to learn from your mistakes and you're going to get better and you're going to get bolder. And this is why it's so important to have a team of pricers, a group that does this over and over and over and over and sees it across the entire firm. Because much like actors and authors have agents, your pricers are your agents. Ryan, you can price me brave as a lion, and I can price you brave as a lion. I can brag about you. I can talk about how great you are, but you can't do the same, and I can't do the same pricing myself. I'm going to wimp out when it comes to pricing myself. Not only do do I have the baggage of the relationship, not only do I really want the customer for whatever reason, but I'm I'm not going to have a spine. Your pricers are your agents. They're your spine. They're there to guard the firm's pricing integrity. That's my most important job as a pricer. I guard the firm's pricing integrity. uh, Pricing to me is strategic. It's not tactical. It's not, 
What price do we need to win this work? I will let the work go away before I cut my price. And that, you know, that freaks a lot of people out. But I don't view it as losing revenue. I view it as husbanding capacity, saving capacity for better opportunities. Yeah. Now, you've been involved with value pricing for quite some time now. Where are we trending? Um, Are we trending away from the billable hour? Is it where we've always been maybe for the last, you know, 20 years or so? Like, where is this trending right now? It's a great question. It's really hard to get data on. The AICPA does, as you know, map surveys and, and some of the state societies do them as well. And when you read some of those, you'll read things like, you know, 40 to 50% of firms are out there either value pricing or fixed pricing. Mm-hmm. And the distinction between those two is <laughs> very, very wide. There's a lot of, I think, you know, cloudy uh, understanding of the difference between a fixed price and a value price. But there's no doubt that we have, we've got the early adapters, the two and a half percent. And I'd even say that we're close to getting the innovators, the next 13 and a half percent or so. We're probably around 10 to 15 percent of the profession that truly does value pricing. We're starting to approach tipping point. We're starting to approach the early majority, the next 35, 34 percent tranche or so. Um, this is all, you know, how an idea diffuses, right? The early adapters, two and two and a half percent pick it up, and then it goes into the innovators, the next 13 and a half percent, and then the early majority is 34 percent. The late majority is the other 34 percent, and the 16 percent probably never do it, anything with it. Um, and the, the thing that encourages me and why I remain uh, a paranoid optimist with respect mm-hmm. to this is because... Now I can tell you that at least 15 to 20 top 100 firms are seriously going down this road, going down this oh, road. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, seriously, and I mean like making major investments, even to the extent, some of them hiring outside pricing talent and getting rid of their time sheets too. Now that now that's going to be a challenge for these top 100 yeah. firms. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are consultants out there that tell them not to, mm-hmm. I'm still probably the only one who's hell bent on getting even these top firms to do it. Uh, but you're starting to see them upskill with respect to their pricing. So I do think the billable hour, although it may not be, uh, its death may not be within reach, it is definitely within sight. And we're coming up on time here, Ron. Um, I just want to know why do you think things are trending away from the billable hour? I, I used to think that talent, the war for talent or the competition for talent would be the major impetus for this mm-hmm. because, you know, hey, we get through college without a timesheet. Why do I have to go to work as an adult and account for every six minutes of my day like I'm a prisoner? Um, but that's surprisingly, I, I think it's a factor, mm-hmm. but I think a bigger factor is the technology you know, what used to take a firm 10 hours can now be done with one, whether it's with a bot, AI, you know, machine learning, blockchain, who knows what that's going to do. So as this drives down, you know, innovation sucks down hours, sucks out hours out of the system. And if your business model says we sell time, then you've got a problem. Not only is your revenue going to take a hit, but your profitability is going to take a hit. And I think to some extent that's created a burning platform. And that's what's causing this change. Great. 
Well, this has been awesome, Ron. Uh, I want to give you a chance to maybe share with some of the listeners what you're up to next, what they could look out for, if they, if uh, you know, they're able to follow you on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever you are. Why don't you kind of just share a little bit of information about what's next for you and how people can connect? Well, uh, everything we just talked about, Ryan, we've blown up. <laughs> We're in value pricing 2.0, yeah. and that is the subscription model. And we are no longer, if, if hourly billing was pricing the work by, by the inputs and value pricing 1.0 was pricing the customer, as you and I just talked about with the eight steps, value pricing 2.0 is pricing the relationship and the portfolio. And the model that I'm, that I'm enamored with and think it's got incredible legs for the accounting profession is the concierge medical practice. Mm -hmm. That's where we're headed. You're right now you can subscribe to a Porsche for about three grand a month and Porsche will handle everything. They'll pay for everything except your gas insurance, everything maintenance. If you need maintenance, they'll come out and pick it up. White glove service. You can trade in models. You get a, a range of models to, that you can drive. So you say, Hey, well, I got friends coming this week. I need an SUV. They'll drive out an SUV, take the old one away. There's no limit how many times you can change the models. It's three grand a month. Analysts say 50% of cars will be subscribed to by 2023. Now, here's the thing with this. How much do car companies spend to get people to rebuy them after they own them? A lot. I can tell you that most of their advertising and marketing is done towards retention marketing. It's not so much getting new customers. It's to get that current BMW owner to buy another one. When you subscribe, you're not buying a Porsche or leasing a Porsche or even subscribing to a Porsche, you're subscribing to Porsche, the company. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where we need. We talk about being a relationship-driven business, but our business model doesn't reflect it. And the subscription model does. And that's where I think this is headed. So I got to get you on another another episode then, Ron. We got to cover this. <laughs> or maybe we can stick for an extra hour. It's, but uh, <laughs> It's actually what I'm doing at QBC. All right. I have a session. My breakout session is going to be on this very thing. And I'm going to... I'm going to present how I think this applies to an accounting firm. And it does. It blows up value pricing. I hate to say it because I spent the last 20 years of my life, 25 years of my life dealing with this. But, you know, that's that's the great thing about free markets. It's creative destruction. You know, the new replaces the old and this is new and it's going to replace the old. Cool. Well, we'll have to talk about this, Ron. And if people want to uh, follow you, where, where could they do so? The best place is the soul of enterprise.com. That's the radio show that I do with Ed Kless every Friday live on Voice America. And uh, we have our website, the soul of enterprise.com. It's got 200, all of 260 some odd shows that we've done over the last uh, coming up now on uh, four and a half years or so. And uh, I, we've talked, we've done shows on the subscription model we've done shows on no timesheet project management because ed's an expert in that so there's lots of lots of great information up there a lot of different topics that, that folks can check out you can also find me on linkedin i'm one of the influencer bloggers so i have lots of posts on that you can also find me at verisage.com which is the think tank i runs website it's got lots of uh great resources and case studies from firms that have made this transition uh, and I'm also happy to uh, get emails from folks, ron at verisage.com. 
And I'm also on Twitter at Ronald Baker. Awesome. Well, you've always been so generous with your time, Ron. You've been very, very helpful uh, throughout my career, and I really do appreciate it. And, um, you know, hopefully this was helpful for some of the other listeners. And I'm really looking forward to learning a, a little bit more about value pricing 2.0. So thanks a lot for being here again today, Ron. Sounds good. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thank you.